Genesis 49, uh, we are coming right up to the end. There are 50 chapters in all. Uh, this is the last uh, words of the patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel. You'll notice that um, the chapter uses both names a number of times throughout the text. We'll talk about why it does that uh, in just a moment here. Join me now as we read Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt, donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. 
up to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning he devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the field in the in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in there, in it, uh, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter is explicitly about Jacob blessing his sons before he dies. Of course, you might wonder, these don't sound like blessings sometimes. Um, it's, it's a little bit more than that. It's foretelling what will happen, what the future will entail. In fact, he says, what shall happen to you in days to come. That phrase, in days to come, is elsewhere in the Old Testament, sometimes translated as in the last days. So there is an eschatological, a last thing aspect to what Jacob has here. How does he have such insight to know what will happen in days to come, in the last days? Because he's not only a father, he's a prophet. God spoke directly to him on numerous occasions and so he, what he says here is inspired by God. We see that it's only the sovereignty of God that could foretell these things because many of them will take thousands of years to actually come to fruition. This shows us that God is the Lord of history. No human can possibly predict what will happen to their children in future generations. As much as you might wish good things for your children, there's no way you can accurately predict what will happen to their children's children or their children's children's children. Nobody knows. It's a complete shot in the dark, but for God, the future is clear. And so these glimpses that, that God gives are precious. They're not often given. We shouldn't expect every parent on their deathbed to know their children's future far into the future. This is a, a rare thing. In fact, um, between uh, Jacob, there is a long gap where nobody gets direct word from God. In fact, the next person that gets direct word from God is the prophet Moses. Moses is born over 400 years after this. So this is, this is rare. So sometimes people have this idea of the Bible as if um, in the Bible, people are just left and right getting words from the Lord. Not really. There's huge periods of time where that's, it doesn't happen. And then there'll be a time where a certain individual 
will get word from the Lord for a certain period of time, and then there'll be another long gap. So it's not as if it's, it's happening left and right. Whenever it happens, it's a big deal, and you should pay attention when God gives these rare glimpses. And you can hear in these, in these uh, prophecies, this, this is very poetic, this is very prophetic and poetic kind of language. Sometimes it's difficult to know what exactly are you saying here. What do you mean Naphtali is a doe? What exactly does that mean? It's, it's sometimes up to interpretation. And even the Hebrew of discerning what exactly does it even mean is difficult at times. Uh, perhaps some of you have different translations of the Bible that as I was reading along, you go, that's not what mine says. For example, um, one of my favorite ones is um, that uh, Issachar is a strong donkey in the ESV. In other translations, it says, He's a raw-boned ass. I don't know what it means, but it sounds fun, doesn't it? Or horrible, uh, or something. It sounds something, something interesting. You don't use the word raw-boned very often. The reason the ESV translates it that way is because they think it means that he's strong. Uh, but maybe it means something else that we don't quite understand what raw-boned means. Um, so there's, there's some difficulty in understanding here, but other things are very straightforward and are amazing uh, in, its, in its accuracy about what God revealed to Jacob about what will happen not only in his son's lives, but in their children's children's and many, many generations down the road. These words echo down through the history of Israel. So let's, let's go through uh, his final words to his sons here. So he says, um, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. There's an interesting contrast going on here right at the jump. If you remember, um, his father Isaac had two sons, twin boys. Esau was born first and then Jacob. And Isaac liked Esau the best, and he wanted to give him the blessing in secret. In fact, Jacob wouldn't have even known that his father was doing this, except that his mother Rebecca overheard Isaac talking to Esau, and then she came up with a plan to scheme and get Jacob the blessing by having him impersonate his brother Esau. It was all very sneaky, all very kind of cloak and dagger almost. But Jacob goes, I don't want to do that. Everybody gather around. Everyone's going to know. This is actually quite amazing. When you understand who Jacob is, what his past was, his very name means deceiver. So it's as if at this point in his life, the deceiver is through with deceiving. He wants nothing to do with deception anymore. He wants everything to be straightforward, above board, no tricks, no deception. God had changed him from this scheming person to faithful Israel, who is full of faith and knows that he can only survive by clinging to God. It's quite an amazing transformation. In fact, throughout this chapter, you'll see sometimes Jacob, sometimes Israel's name is used. Uh, perhaps sometimes that's just for poetic effect, not to use the same name over and over again. But there's also an interesting dynamic between Jacob is kind of his weakness. Israel is him and his strength. Because he clings to the Lord, God himself changed his name to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God or he who holds fast to God. That's what his name means. 
So there's a really interesting dynamic here. And the, the order of blessing roughly goes in birth order. First, the six sons of Leah, and then the, the uh, four sons of the maidservants. And there's an alternating structure of Zilp, uh, Zilpah, Billa, Zilpah, Billa. And then the two sons of Rachel is the order that it goes in. Um, and the first three boys, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, as you read those, do those sound like blessings to you? Uh, in fact, I've often wondered, um, you know, Reuben's standing there along with all of his brothers, and it starts off, you are my firstborn, my might, first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And he's like, yes, that is me. And then he goes, unstable as water. Uh-oh. You shall not have preeminence. Uh, because you went up to your father's bed and you, then de- you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Oh, I took a turn, didn't it? That's, uh, that's awkward. What is he referring to here? What he's referring to is something that happened way back in uh, Genesis 35, 22. It's only one verse. I would love to know more about what in the world he was doing. Why did he think that this was a good idea? But it just says this, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. That's it. He lay with his father's concubine and dishonored it. And he remembers that happened many, many years ago, but it stuck with him and it disqualified him. The blessing goes roughly in birth order, but it does not go by, well, the oldest is clearly going to be the one that's dominant because the first three brothers disqualified themselves from leadership with various sins. And Jacob was not at all shy about addressing these, even though they happened a long time ago. He has still learned the lesson. Reuben's blessing started with him emphasizing strength and yet he is called turbulent waters. What does he mean by he's turbulent waters? Well, it means he's unstable. It means that he can't be relied upon. He's unreliable. He's dangerous, just like Reuben had showed himself to be. Reuben would no longer excel. He would no longer be preeminent. He had disqualified himself through his actions. Reuben allowed his lust to control him, and this simply could not be tolerated. You couldn't have the leader of the tribes of Israel being someone who's just driven by his passionate lust. And so the the double blessing that's supposed to go to the firstborn is taken away. In the previous chapter, in chapter 48, we saw how um, Jacob actually gave the, the firstborn double blessing to the firstborn of Rachel, Joseph, by adopting his two sons and giving them both rights alongside his son. So that's a way for him to get the double blessing, for Joseph to get that double blessing through his sons. And Reuben loses that right. So he's no longer going to be preeminent. Now, interestingly enough, as you read the rest of the Old Testament, Reuben is very, very unimportant. Um, He... Reuben never produces any judge. He never produces any king, any priest, or any prophet. He literally has no preeminence, and he just sort of fades away. There were no prominent leaders from the tribe of Reuben, 
for the rest of Scripture. Simeon and Levi are linked. They're gathered together because of what they had done in Shechem back in Genesis 34. They slaughtered that city in their rage. Now, what happened that made them so angry? Well, their sister was raped by the prince of that town. And so do you understand their rage? Yeah, I get it. I've got sisters. I've got daughters, a daughter. Um, I get it. I get why you'd want vengeance like that, but to slaughter the entire town was not right. And so they are called out. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence. Let my soul not come into their counsel. My glory not be joined to their company. He wants nothing to do with it. They cannot be the leaders being controlled also by their passion, but this time their rage. Rage is a dangerous thing. The Lord has given men physical strength, and a general, most men have a sense of, I want to protect, I want to defend what, what is mine and, and the people I care about, and that's a good thing, but that desire can be twisted, and it can be very dangerous when, when men who are clever and strong become enraged and allow that to cloud their judgment, really bad things happen. That's what these guys did. They came up with a scheme by which they could get their revenge because they convinced um, Shechem to become circumcised and along with his entire town. They actually used the sign of the covenant as a means of revenge. It would almost be like saying, okay, um, you can become a Christian, you can become like one of us, and then you poison the communion or something. It's it's blasphemous. It's disgusting. It's a perversion of what the sign of the covenant is supposed to be. And so they take advantage while the men of the town are unable to defend themselves, and they slaughtered the entire town, and they pillaged it. Their violence was cursed by Jacob. He did not want his people to be defined like that. And this is actually kind of uh, unusual because uh, all the time in the ancient world, there, there were wars. All the time, this people displacing this people, this city going to war against this city. It was common. It was not at all unusual to have one people group displaced by another one. But Jacob is making it pretty clear, hey, guys, I don't want you to be like this. I don't want you to be the violent people. I don't want you to be defined by rage and by violence. This is unacceptable. And so they are, will be scattered. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. In actual point, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, also is literally scattered. They seem to have been mostly absorbed by the tribe of Judah in the, in the allotment. And then by the time uh, they settle and by the time King David is reigning, Simeon is virtually extinct. Levi is a little bit different because Levi is act, actually becomes the priestly tribe and God would work some redemption for them. And the Levites were not given any tribal allotment of land, but they were given cities that were spread out throughout the other tribes' land so that they could um, engage in the activities of worship of God. They were the, the ones that were used by God uh, for the worship 
of, of Yahweh. God would change the fierce violence of their father, Levi, to become zeal for God's holiness in service to the worship of Israel as the priestly tribe. This is redemption. One of the interesting uh, dynamics of scripture is that typically when somebody thinks of a priest of a of some sort of religious figure, they think of a guy that's like kind of milk toast. You know, he's he's really peaceful. He won't he won't fight or anything. Um, that is the wrong picture to get for the Levites. Um, they are dangerous. In fact, um, after the event with the golden calf, um, when uh, Israel was brought to the Mount, Mount Sinai and uh, Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. When he came down, the Israelites had made a golden calf and were bowing down. And Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And all the Levites said, me. And so then they went through the camp and they killed everyone that, that had been worshiping this golden calf. On another um, uh, circumstance in the book of Numbers, you have somebody, uh, so the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was holy. There were places that only the Levites could go. And one of the uh, Israelites profaned it by stepping across the line where they shouldn't be, and the Levites executed him. Uh, these were vicious, um, but they're not evil. They're actually, that, that violent tendency was actually put to good use in the service of something good those violent tendencies could actually be harnessed. So Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were all controlled by their passions instead of being concerned for what is right and what is pure, and they all paid the price for it. And they're made an example of for the rest of Israel so that all of the coming generations would be able to look at the example of Reuben, Levi, and Simeon and go, you don't want to be controlled by raw passion. You need the restraint of what is right. You actually need to know you can't just go wild. While it would seem that the, the blessing that Jacob says about them is not really a blessing, if you actually look at it from another perspective, it was a blessing to all the tribes, to Israel, to not be ruled by men that were reckless in their passion. It would be a lesson for following generations. Don't allow strong emotions without restraint Seek the Lord. Be restrained by what is true, what is honoring to God. Even, even the, the passionate lust of Reuben, that's actually okay if it's within the bounds of, of marriage. When it drives you to love your wife, that's actually a good thing. But for what he did, it was, it was wrong and it was a violation. And so uh, we see that even the anti-blessings were actually blessings in themselves. Blessings to some tribes were blessings to all of Israel. So as we move along, we come to Judah. Judah gets a huge amount of text. A lot more attention is paid to Judah than most of the other tribes, Joseph being the only other example of a lot of attention being paid to a single tribe. There's an interesting play on words here. Judah, the name, means praise. So when he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, he's doing a play on words there. And he, he puts Judah forward as being exemplary, as the one that all of the other tribes will look at and go, yes, go, that is our guy. Your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is a position of dominance. This is his enemies bowing down to him. 
having your hand on their neck is a position of power. Your father's son shall bow down before you. So this is, in other words, saying that um, he is going to have dominance over both his enemies and his own kin. His, his brothers shall also bow down to him. He shall be raised up above them. And then we're given the picture of Judah is a lion's cub. We get this picture of strength. The lion is a picture of strength that fits the tribe of Judah very well. He will be the dominant force in all of the rest of the history of Israel. Judah will take preeminence. And in his own lifetime, he had become the de facto leader. And all the interactions that uh, Joseph had had with his brothers during that whole phase, we saw uh, Judah taking on more responsibility early on. Reuben was the one that was kind of speaking for the group and, and setting uh, policy, if you will, and it didn't go well. He made a lot of mistakes. He spoke out of ignorance rather than wisdom, and Judah gradually took on more responsibility, and it really culminated with him being willing to sacrifice himself and his own freedom for the sake of his brother Benjamin. That is the epitome of what leadership ought to be within the people of God, one who sacrifices for those he leads. And this is the first time that we learn that the line of kings will come from the line of Judah. And so we we see that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is the first time that we learn that there will be a king, and also that it will come from Judah. More than that, though, we also learn that the great king who will defeat his enemies and reign forever will come from the line of Judah. So it says that the scepter will not depart from him until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He shall reign not only over Israel, but also from the peoples. That word is also used as nations, the same word. So the the picture is not only just king of Israel, it's king of all the nations, king of the world. Who is this dominant lion king? It is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And this picture is is picked up and explicit in um, Revelation chapter 5, one of my uh, favorite passages talking about Jesus in his, in his strength and in his mission and how he rules and who his people are in relation to him. In Revelation 5, uh, verse 5, we read this. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then down in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have the position of Jesus lifted high here as the king, not only of his people, but of all the nations. How does he take his ransom? Through his own blood, ransoming people with his own blood, sacrificing that they may be redeemed, calling people from every tribe, language, and people. To think about the Messiah, the king that will come and reign forever as only being over Israel, is too small a vision of of God's plan. God's plan was not only the redemption of one family out of all the families of the earth, it is the redemption of all mankind. Biblically, 
how many races are there? There's only one real race. It's the human race. Fallen in Adam, redeemed in Christ. That's the amazing picture that is hinted at even in this early stage. Purchased by his own blood. Genesis uh, 49, 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine seems super odd, right? How, what does that even mean? Probably it means it's a picture of prosperity. The donkey was a, a noble animal. So today we kind of don't have a great view of, of donkeys. To be called a donkey is probably not a compliment, um, but it was a valuable animal. They're strong. Um, and they were actually ridden by royalty. Um, and to bind it to a choice vine means that you're so wealthy, you don't even mind if the donkey eats the grapes or messes up the vine. This is a picture of prosperity. He's Not only does he have a donkey, he'll just tie him up to the best vine he's got because he's got lots of them. He doesn't mind. There's an interesting question. What does it mean he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes? Well, some people suggest that this is a picture of prosperity as well. The thought being, if you're so wealthy, you can just wash your clothes in wine because you've got so much wine. Is that effective as a laundering technique? I've never done it. Maybe. Um, I don't. I don't have that much money to wash my clothes in wine, but I don't think it would be particularly effective. So the point, though, is not the effectiveness of washing your clothes in, in the blood of grapes. It's, it's a sign of wealth. That's one interpretation of it. Um, I, I like another potential, which is to look to other points in Scripture of somebody washing their clothes in wine. In Isaiah uh, 63, uh, 1 through 4, we read this. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who, is in, who, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he, uh, his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered my, on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Hmm. It's blood. That's another spin on it. What's going on in Isaiah? Who is he who comes from Edom? Edom is their enemy. Basra is the capital of their enemy, the ones who have been uh, persecuting and, and killing them and warring with them. And he comes from the realm of his enemies, drenched in the blood of his enemies. And he says, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It's interesting what's going on here. We have this picture of one who is the savior, who saves his people, it's great news for them, really bad news for his enemies, who he has trampled in his wrath. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? Their lifeblood spattered on my garments. 
stained all my apparel. That'll stick with you. But this is a picture of the Lord Jesus who comes to triumph over his enemies, who comes in might and power. This same imagery of Jesus as conqueror shows up again in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Now, this is actually an interesting uh, picture to put in your head at Christmas time. What's the typical image that you have at Christmas time? It's a little baby lying in a manger. No crying he makes. Isn't it sweet? Watch how he's described here. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I ain't no baby. It's more like the Terminator coming to do justice, coming to give salvation to his people. You see, the, the, the deliverer is somewhat of a matter of perspective. Not in, the, not in the Star Wars sense of, you know, oh, it's a matter of perspective that your father's dead. No, not like that. Like, really, pers- you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it um, doesn't matter. Um, Jesus, for those who trust in him, who are his people, saves them from all of their enemies, ransoms them, calls him his own, rewards them, brings them into his kingdom. Great news. For those who oppose him, for those who have ridiculed, for those who have mocked, for those who have not believed and received the gift of salvation, it's not good news. The devil finds his judgment when the Lord returns. Those who have acted wickedly and rejected the gospel will find the person who treads out the wine press covered in blood. It's a scary thing to run up against a king that you cannot possibly defeat. His eyes darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk is a picture of his virility, of his power, of his health. It's a powerful picture of Judah and the one who will come from him of the line of David to be king of kings and Lord of lords, not only of one nation, but of all peoples on earth. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. There's a bit of a question here about uh, what sea are we talking about. Um, 
you might think from this description that the tribal allotment of land that they had in Canaan was on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but it wasn't. It was actually right next to the Sea of Galilee. Um, so probably uh, this is, there's two options. One is perhaps it refers to fulfillment in the Solomonic reign when um, Israel's border was extended. Perhaps Zebulun got land that was on the seashore and it, this was fulfilled that way. Or maybe it's referring to the uh, Sea of Galilee and their, their ships there. It's unclear exactly uh, what's going on here, but it is a blessing. Border shall be at Sidon is a picture of an extensive border. Then we get the interesting description of Issachar as a strong donkey, which is probably a probably a nicer, less confusing interpretation than I gave you earlier as a raw-boned donkey. Um, but it is a picture of, of strength, but also laziness. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. The tribe of Issachar indeed becomes the servant of others. He never rises to prominence. They're strong. They do fight in the wars, but they're somewhat lazy. The picture of Dan uh, is the first uh, son of one of the maidservants. So um, Issachar is the last of the sons of Leah. Dan also has a good blessing that at first sounds strange. Uh, usually uh, the comparison to a viper, you, when you think that person's a viper, that's not a compliment. Um, but it is here, he judges his people. Again, this is a play on words. The name Dan, um, he's named that because um, Leah says, God has judged me. This is by her, her servant. And so uh, Dan is the, the one who judges his people. Now, Perhaps this is a reference to one of my favorite uh, judges in the book of Judges, Samson. Samson was a Danite. His father uh, was of the tribe of Dan. He's one of the um, more interesting, colorful characters in Scripture. He's uh, the only character that has superhuman attributes for his entire life. He's super strong. He's born for one reason, to kill Philistines that had been oppressing the people. So as you, as you look at the life of Samson, um, sometimes he's characterized as a kind of a, a meathead that's stronger than he is smart. He makes kind of silly decisions. He, his weakness is women. He chases after women that cause him to do crazy things. And that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that God used him he was born for one reason, to kill Philistines, and he killed them by the bushel. And um, he, God brought him to do that through his unwise, lustful sort of decisions. And he did judge the people of Israel for 20 years. In fact, he's an interesting Christ figure, believe it or not. Um, his parents were barren, not able to have children. An angel appeared to his mother and said, you shall have a child. And then also to his father later on. And they said, your child shall, is going to be special because he will deliver his people. Hmm, interesting. And also, uh, he kills, he redeems his people more in his death than through his life. Samson, at the end of his life, the Philistines had gouged out his eyes and uh, they had brought him out to entertain them. He'd cut his hair. They thought that his strength was gone. And um, he said, uh, put my hands on the pillars. 
apparently the building that they were in, all the weight-bearing structure was on these two pillars. So he put his hands on the pillars and he said, Lord, uh, give me back my strength to make up for my eyes. And he pushes the pillars down and he brings the house down. And he, he killed thousands, I think it's 3,000 Philistines on that day. And he, so he killed more in his death than he did during his life. So Jesus also um, did more in his death to save his people uh, than in his life. So it's interesting. Uh, you don't usually think of a guy like Samson as a Christ figure, but there's interesting analogies there. So perhaps that's a reference to that. If it is a reference to Samson, it's appropriate because the viper is small. He hangs out by himself, but he's dangerous and he can bring down uh, the rider. And he brought down uh, the Philistines by that one action. He's a one man alone. He never led a big army, but he, uh, he did what he needed to do to deliver his people. Then we have this interesting interjection in verse 18. I wait for your salvation Oh, Lord. Why does he interject such a, a short prayer right in the middle? Probably because he's been talking about a lot of conflict in the future of his people. He's been talking about the need for fighters, the need to be tough, the need to fight back. This is, this is tough for him to contemplate. And so he's telling them, where is salvation going to come from? Please, my sons, my don't trust in your own strength. Salvation comes from the Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. If they are to survive, they must learn salvation comes from the Lord. And you see this play out in the history of Israel over and over again. When they get away from trusting in the Lord, God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. Things do not go well. But when they trust in God, God delivers them and blesses them and they flourish. Over and over again, you'll see that cycle. It's important that they understand. It's important that all God's people understand where does our salvation come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from believing in his promises. Then we're, we're given brief glimpses of, of Gad, of Asher, and of Naphtali. There's a funny play on words with um, Gad's blessing in verse 19. The All of the words used there rhyme with Gad. Um, I, I was trying to say it. It's hard to say. My Hebrew is not great. So, but it, there's a play on words there. It's sort of like um, um, Gadaru, Gadarite, Gadahi, Gadite. It's weird, um, but it's, it's a play on words. You don't get it so much in English. Um, Asher um, will actually inhabit, oh, Funny thing about Gad, Gad's tribal allotment is in the Transjordan area, and they're constantly, whenever an enemy invades Israel, they go right through Gad's tribal allotment. Uh, they get to be the border guards that are always getting run over. Um, but it seems that they never give up. They fight back. They eventually get the invaders out. And later on, they seem to resort to a lot of guerrilla warfare kind of techniques. So the description here about... Um, Raiders raiding Gad, but he shall raid at their heels, becomes very accurate. Asher, the tribe of Asher, takes um, their allotment is some of the richest uh, farmland in, in Canaan. And so their description as being the food shall be rich, he shall yield royal delicacies, is very much fulfilled. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Uh, it's a little of feet. Uh, 
it's hard to say, what, what are you talking about? Um, and I, I wonder what he thought it meant. Um, we're not really sure what exactly that means, but it should be noted that all of the blessings on the tribes that are blessings are not only for their good, it's for the good of all of the tribes. It would be good for all of them to have fighters, to have justice, to have uh, food, to have a beautiful dough, I guess. That's fun. Um, but the strength of the tribes would come through unity in God's strength, waiting on the Lord. They would need one another to thrive in the land that God would give to them. The book of Judges takes place right after they take possession of the land in Joshua. Joshua is a book of conquest. They take control of uh, Canaan. They fight many battles against different groups, and they're given their tribal allotments. And then Judges is about their struggles to be faithful in the land. They have no king, and that's the theme of the book. In those days, there was no king. And there's a, a terrible shift that goes. From the beginning of Judges, you have outside powers um, oppressing them when they turn away from the Lord, and then God raises up a deliverer, a judge, from among them to defeat the enemies, and then things are good while there's a judge, then the judge dies, and then they forget the Lord, and they serve other gods, and so God brings another oppressor from the outside and rinse, repeat. But by the end of the book, you have civil war, and the tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped out. And that's a picture of the disunity and the destruction that that brings and the need of the king from Judah to eventually bring things the way that they should be. It's vital that we understand that there is no blessing apart from God's power. And you see this brought out very strongly in the Joseph blessings. Now, of course, <clears throat> in the last chapter, um, Ephraim and Manasseh, J uh, Joseph's two sons, were adopted by Jacob. And so what's, what's said about Joseph here is also applied to them. It's pretty straightforward, most of it for what's going on. A fruitful bow, uh, a bow overflowing uh, the wall, his branches run over the wall, is a picture of great prosperity. They, they are numerous. In fact, um, when, they, when they first come out of, of Egypt um, to the time that they take possession of the land, there's a census and it'll tell you how many fighting men there are. They've increased three times. There's, there's tons of them. And they become uh, some of the do most dominant tribes, especially the tribe of Ephraim becomes very, very prosperous. And uh, you have this picture of, of a thriving people with Joseph. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. This is a, a picture that was brought out both in Joseph's life and in the, in the life of his, his uh, tribes, that of enemies trying to destroy him and God preserving him and God protecting him and making him thrive even in the midst of their attacks on him. It had been and would continue to be by God's shepherding protection that prosperity would come to the tribes of Joseph. Calling him a prince among his brothers is interesting and could be misunderstood. Um, 
what does it mean to be a prince? Um, it could be understood as a, as a royal thing, um, but the, the ESV does a good job of laying it out. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. That's a better translation. Some older translations say he is a prince among his brothers, which makes it sound like there's a, a, uh, a royal dynamic, like he should be the king. The set apart is a better translation because the, wor- the Hebrew word there is nazir, um, it's the same word that the Nazarite vow comes from. It means one who is set apart for a special purpose. The Nazarite vow is described as uh, something that anyone can voluntarily do, and you uh, voluntarily abstain from certain foods and certain activities for a period of time. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, um, and so this this sense of being set apart is what's going on with Joseph. He's he's set apart. Their their tribes are special. The, um, ben, the picture of Benjamin as an aggressive predator, as a wolf, comes very much true as the tribe of Benjamin were renowned warriors. And that uh, event that I previously referenced in uh, the life of Israel, where Judah and the other tribes go to war against Benjamin, the Benjamites who are nearly uh, destroyed in that conflict, but early on they won victories against all the tribes united against them, and their warriors are renowned as being able to sling a, a stone at a hare and not miss. They're killers and they're renowned warriors. The description is, is pretty good here. And when uh, Benjamin fights with his brothers, things go well, and they, they all benefit from his military prowess, uh, and they, when they fight against him, things go poorly. The history of the tribes of Israel is one of blessing, though. It's clearly visible where their strength comes from. Their strength does not come because they're really good farmers. It doesn't come because they're really good merchants. It doesn't come because they're really good warriors. Their strength comes from the Lord. That is the point that is made throughout the Old Testament. When they trust in the Lord, things go well. When they turn away, things go poorly. And so you see this brought about um, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb. These are trust in the Lord. Your help comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Having blessed his sons now, he's at rest. He's able to encourage them. Find your strength in the Lord. Trust in him. He knows what's best. Stick to him and things will go well. And he's able to rest and ask his sons, bury me in the land of my fathers. Bury me in Canaan, in the same tomb that my father and his father and their wives are buried in. This is a reminder to them of who they are, that even though things are going really well in Egypt and maybe they're tempted to just settle down, he says, no, Canaan is where we all belong. It's where I belong. It's where you're going to return someday. And so he gives them these instructions and makes them swear they will return him to the land of Canaan to be buried in the cave of Machpelah. And he breathes his last and was gathered to his people. No one could ask for more than this. He had seen God's blessings. His family was all at peace. And if you remember his life 
That was not at all the case early on. His family was defined by conflict, and yet now they're all together living in peace, and so he's able to die knowing that God will continue to provide for his family. That's a picture that I hope that we can all embrace. The children of Israel were not perfect. I hope you understand that as we've been working through Genesis, we're talking about very sinful, very flawed, ordinary people, people a lot like us, in other words. We're not talking about people that have, that have halos and never did something wrong and always knew the right path. These people struggled. They had many sins, but you know what they had that carried them through? They had the covenant promises of God. The main character is God throughout The book of Genesis tells us the origin of all things, that God created all things good and that that good creation was corrupted by sin. And so when we we look at the, the lives of the patriarchs, we're looking at God's plan of redemption being unfolded. We have God calling Abraham, who's a very ordinary man, um, and he calls him to his own. And he says, go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a blessing. I will bless you, and those who bless you will be blessed. God had a plan to redeem humanity, and that plan was enacted through Abraham and his descendants. And then we see this interesting theme of God choosing um, one and not another. So with Abraham, he has two sons, and he chooses Isaac. That will be the covenant line, not Ishmael. And then Isaac has two sons, and it will be Jacob not Esau. And then with uh, Jacob's sons, we see that the, the line of, of kings, the line of redemption will come through Judah. And then later on, we see that it will be through the family of David, who that, that kingly line will come. And then finally, the promises of redemption would be fulfilled through Jesus Christ of the line of David. And he would be this one who works to redeem creation, that mistake that Adam made by breaking God's covenant, eating the forbidden fruit, that corruption that entered into all of creation at that point will one day be totally washed away with the blood of Christ. Christ would give his life to redeem a people for himself and enable them to receive the full blessings of God. The plan of redemption that God has is vast. It is beautiful. It becomes our story as we embrace the promises that he has given to us. During this time of year, it's it's really um, easy to just become kind of sentimental and just kind of be like, yay, Christmas spirit, Merry Christmas and everything. But what are we really talking about when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth? We're talking about God's plan of salvation that was enacted thousands of years before Jesus was born coming to fruition for our salvation. It's not just a cute picture. It's salvation. It is life. Instead of Jesus coming only for Israel, though, he comes for the nations, and all who believe become the benefactors of what Christ came to do. One of the things that I find so amazing about this this story of redemption is that we don't deserve it. Just like the Israelites had to find salvation, not through their strength, but through waiting on the Lord for salvation, we too, 
though we are often tempted to rest in ourselves, thinking that if we're just good enough, if we can just be good people, we can somehow deserve it or, or prove that we're worthy of the love of God, the reality is we are all sinners. We do not deserve God's favor, but he gives it to all who believe. We become benefactors of the blessings of God through faith. In this way, God has revealed this plan of redemption in order that each of us will understand, I need a Savior, and give all praise and glory to God. It's not about us any more than it was about the man Jacob. It wasn't about the man Jacob. It wasn't about the man Judah. It's about God's covenant promises being fulfilled. It's about God's mercy being shown to a weak and sinful people like us. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that you work through sinful people like us. Lord, I pray that the gospel would deeply penetrate our hearts, our lives, our minds, that we may give you the praise that you so richly deserve. We thank you, Lord, that your plan of redemption was put into motion so long ago, fulfilled in Jesus, and we are still carrying that plan out even in our own lives. We thank you, Lord, that we become part of your great story, not because of anything that we do, but because of what you have done for us. Lord, may we be those who live in thanksgiving for what you have done for us, live rejoicing in the good plans that you have. In Jesus' name, amen.